This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. In Conversation is sponsored by the Seaborne, Broughton and Walford Foundation, a charity that has been successfully supporting the performing arts in Australia since 1986. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Today, I'm speaking with a violinist and conductor whose career spans three decades. Stan Dodds has been a violinist with the Berlin Philharmonic since 1994 and he's been principal conductor of the Berlin Symphony Orchestra since 2014. He's conducted around the world, from our own Melbourne, Tasmanian and Canberra Symphony Orchestras to the Hamburg, Vancouver and Beijing Symphony Orchestras and plenty more. He also has a passion for music education, which makes him so suitable for his latest appointment as the new chief conductor of the Sydney Youth Orchestras and I'm delighted he's found time on one of his visits back to Australia to come and be in conversation with me now. Stan Dodds, a very warm welcome to 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thank you, Simon. It's lovely to be here. Yes, welcome back to Australia. Is it still sort of home? It's very much home. I mean, uh, I'm always quite thrilled when people tell me after I've revealed that I've been away from Australia now for almost 35 years that I still sound like an Australian and I have my Australian accent is still quite... Uh, unsullied. So I, I take that as a as a compliment. It can be difficult to shake. <laughs> well, for me, it's always just been a question of relaxing back into it. That's a nice way of putting it, relaxing back into it. So the Sydney Youth Orchestras, what's attracted you to take on this role? Well, I've always, over the, over the 20 years particularly that I've been conducting, I've always welcomed all opportunities to return to Australia to be professionally active. As I said before, I, I carry something of Australia around with me at all times. And um, I mean, without a doubt, I've spent the majority of my life in Europe and I could fairly call myself a European and very specifically a German and even more specifically a Berliner. But there remains the Australian in me and therefore to be able to return home and uh, be professionally active. Another opportunity was also in recent years, the Australian World Orchestra as Mm, a player. That was a very important experience for me too, to just to congregate with Australian musicians from abroad and locally. But of course, the conducting engagement. So when I had the invitation or when I received the invitation from Christopher Lawrence to come and work with Sydney Youth Orchestra, I was very keen. I enjoy working with youth orchestras and I have done a significant amount of that also. I have been in charge of a youth orchestra in northeastern Germany now for over 12 years and conducted youth orchestras in various parts of the world. And uh, so I, I... I I was very pleased about that prospect, particularly when we began talking about repertoire and I realised that uh, the Sydney Youth Orchestras were quite open to ambitious uh, or unusual repertoire suggestions. And uh, uh, that particularly appealed to me because they seemed to be principally interested in the experience for the youth rather than perhaps secondary considerations uh, that sometimes might uh, influence more commercially minded uh, decisions. Mm. I'm always of the opinion that good music sells, but of course it always needs a bit of help and so the conviction has to be very strong. It's not just about the repertoire though. I mean, when you're leading a youth orchestra like that, you're also playing the role of a mentor at least to some extent. Would that be right? I'm sure. And I mean, the thing is that uh, I have now over 30 years professional experience as a player in the Berlin Philharmonic, 
20 years experience as a conductor. I've been involved in management of the orchestra and of course the organization of youth orchestras in general. I think experience is one thing I have on my side. And I think maybe it's worth pointing out that I myself was quite a latecomer to uh, symphonic music and the orchestral canon. Um, my studies in Australia and even the continuation at tertiary level in Lucerne, Switzerland, focused primarily on the violin. I did study uh, conducting nominally in, in Lucerne, but uh, the main interest was for the violin. And it was only really when I got to Berlin and became a member of the Karajan Academy of the Berlin Philharmonic that the vastness and, and uh, incredible orchestral canon was revealed to me, or at least I realised what there was to discover. And that in the environment of the Berlin Philharmonic, together with the conductors of the time in the 90s, which included, well, Claudio Bardo as a chief conductor, but, you know, the weekly guests were Marcel Haitink, Ozawa, Scholte, uh, you name it. They were the conductors I was working with. So it was, a, you could say, a spectacular introduction, but I was, I was still very much a newcomer. So that means I went through the learning curve as an adult. And in doing so, I think I can remember very much what it was like not to know and what the journey was mm. and the sorts of realizations the journey of discovery I made. Almost. I didn't grow up mm. with it, uh, but I discovered it later. And therefore, that journey, I think, is of maybe some assistance to me now in my pedagogical work with the orchestras, particularly youth orchestras. But it's similar in a way also with amateurs. I, I remember in the in the initial years simply not understanding the phenomena around me in the orchestra. Why does the orchestra react like this? What's the relationship between the way a conductor moves and beats mm. and the orchestra reacts? And a lot of these questions led to my own investigations, led to my curiosity in conducting and pursuing that then very seriously. And I think it's simply this awareness, this uh, actually adult awareness of the journey that helps me when working with uh, youth. Interesting. Well, we'll hear a lot more about the Sydney Youth Orchestras and, uh, well, your life uh, getting to the Berlin Field, etc. But first of all, we have to have our first track of music. And Stan, you've got some lovely selections for us today and some diverse selections and, most excitingly, a couple of selections which are not commercially available. And that's the first one that we have here, a performance by the Sydney Symphony Orchestra. What have you got for us first? So the works that I've chosen to listen to today are going to feature in my first programs with Sydney Youth Orchestra. So I'm, I'm thrilled that uh, we can perhaps do this journey together and I can Great. say a few words about each of the works. So the first work is by Kathy Milliken and it's called Catalogue of Skies or Catalogue of the Sky. And it was premiered in 2022 with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and Simone Young as part of their Fanfare Commissions. So uh, a relatively short work. I have a, a friendship or a working relationship with Kathy that goes back also some 20 years, I would say. I met Kathy when she came to uh, become the director of the educational outreach program of the Berlin Philharmonic. And in that capacity, I did uh, a number of projects as a member of the Berlin Phil with her. But most memorably for quite a number of years, we ran a youth composition competition. Uh, so we advertised within Germany, but eventually it even extended outside the German borders for teenagers. I think the age limit was school age, really, to submit uh, compositions. We would uh, determine the parameters, how many instruments, uh, how long, and then we would adjudicate those and 
invite four or five uh, of those composers to come to Berlin, where then in a, in a week we would uh, workshop those pieces. Uh, I would usually conduct them. Uh, Kathy would talk with them about compositional techniques and styles. And whilst in Berlin, they could attend also um, rehearsals and concerts of the Berlin Phil. And, and, and I have very, very fond memories of this. And in some ways, I think that's also a reason why it was just very important for me to include Kathy uh, in my program. The one other thing also that attracted me immediately about this particular work is uh, the moment that I arrived in Australia, I think it was in February 22, where I hadn't been in the country due to COVID for a good three years and where I might add, perhaps this occurred all throughout the world, but the diverse policies in how to deal with COVID led to sometimes a feeling of great estrangement. And uh, that struck me particularly so. Some of the ordeals, particularly that my wife went through trying to get into Australia and uh, and sitting through the hotel quarantine, etc. Mm. It, it created some divisions, created some tension, created a, a feeling of distance to Australia. But I remember landing in Melbourne to visit my son there and looking out of the window in the morning and just thinking how big the sky is. The sky in Australia is huge and I'd forgotten that and it was just a sense of returning and, and therefore just the, the image of the sky for me is a very special one, particularly in connection to Australia. Millikan's Catalogue of the Sky, Simone Young conducting the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in a special recording provided to us by the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, and we're grateful for them doing so. The first choice of my guest in conversation today, Stan Dodds. He's the new chief conductor of the Sydney Youth Orchestras. Stan, you were born in Canada but grew up in Adelaide. Do you remember the move to Australia? <laughs> I think the move occurred as soon as they could travel. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I think it's more just a chance of history that I was born in Canada. It had to do with the professional activity of my parents. Both of them are mathematicians and, and an initial job offer in Canada which followed their graduation in California. But I think already during the time that uh, my mother was pregnant with me, there was an offer to take up a professorship uh, or a lecturer position at, I think, what was then a still very young Flinders University in Adelaide, which uh, my father then accepted. So I think pretty well, as soon as I was born, the family uh, moved to Adelaide. So I can only remember growing up in Adelaide. Right. Well, you have long haul travel in your genes then. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not difficult to travel around the world. Uh, I've got a great quote here that your mother took you to violin lessons when you were four as she needed something to occupy this lively little boy. Is that right? (laughs) 
<laughs> that's what she says. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, it was... Uh, but the point is they're mathematicians, they weren't musicians. They, they loved music. Uh, yeah. That was, And they had a, a deep fascination for music. I mean, both of them engaged with it in their own way as much as they could. My mother played a little bit of piano. I know my father, it was very late before he actually heard his first classical music record, but was always fascinated by it. And I, and I remember he also taught himself to play the recorder. So uh, there was a passion for music. And I think quite fortunately, there was a, a very good violin teacher close by, um, you know, 10 minute drive from home who was recommended to us by a family friend. And I think, you know, these are, these are the elements of good fortune that lead to having some luck and success in a career. So do you remember anything about those early years playing the violin? Absolutely. I mean, it dominated uh, family life at home. I'm one of five siblings and four of us are professional musicians. Actually, four of us are professional violinists. Uh, my brother is artistic director. Daniel Dodds is artistic director of Festival Strings Lucerne. He conducts that orchestra. Uh, my sister Kylie is a concertmaster of an orchestra in Thuringen, in Rudolstadt, in eastern Germany. And my sister Sophia runs a, a very large string school teaching violin and, and cello in Armidale, New South Wales, heartstring. So uh, the result of that intense family dedication to particularly violin playing has resulted in for professionals. And so it was practice before school. It was practice after school. It was ensemble practice on Saturday and it was lessons on Sunday. And uh, all of this at the studio of Alita Larsens, who herself was uh, a Latvian citizen. I believe she uh, had uh, significant Russian influence in her training, but she emigrated to Australia and ran a violin studio in Brighton, Adelaide. So you moved to Europe at a relatively young age, don't you, still as a high school student? Well, my parents uh, had the opportunity to spend a couple of sabbatical years in Europe. So even during the 17 years that you grow up and go to school in Australia, there were two year-long sojourns in Europe. One when I was five, where we moved around a bit. Uh, we spent time in Trieste and, and, and in the Black Forest, but significantly in, in uh, Leiden in, in Holland for six months, where I attended preschool. And that gave me memories of a place other than Australia that I think stayed with me very intensely, you know, a European winter, ice skating, Christmas, um, the, the whole uh, local flair of a small Dutch town, you know, with the markets and the cheeses. And the, a lot of that stayed with me, the visits to the museums, you know, Van Gogh, and, and these became familiar terms to me without me knowing how to put them into any other context other than they just exist. Um, and then as a 15-year-old, so then I was in year 10, we spent another year overseas and this time in Linz in Austria. And uh, there uh, my brother and I attended a special music high school uh, where the school hours were shortened so that there would be more time for musical practice and instruction in the afternoons. I think probably similar to Con High here in Sydney. And this was a very rich and intense musical environment that I think was quite decisive uh, for me in at least considering music as a profession because until that time I think music was simply one of the things that I was interested in rather than the central interest of my life and I think this year spent in Austria also in a in a country and a society where music is let's say plays a quite a central role to the to national identification uh, uh, that was that was very important to me because it was a new concept in a way. Mm. So I assume that if you're there uh, as a 15-year-old, like a sponge, you, you managed to pick up German quite easily. 
It was certainly advantageous to do the brunt of the learning of the language <laughs> at 15. So when I returned later, it was there to a degree. Yeah, so I'm very jealous. Our next piece of music now, Stan, and uh, this is another unreleased recording, this time from the Berlin Philharmonic. Tell us about this one. So this is a piece uh, that uh, Gustavo Dudamel brought uh, to perform with us in early 2023. It preceded uh, a symphony by Charles Ives and a piano concerto by Ginistera. And I simply remember sitting playing this thinking, oh, this is a great piece. I reckon a youth orchestra would love it. It's titled Tenec, Invenciones de Territorio, by the Mexican composer Gabriela Ortiz. Gabriela Ortiz is an interesting person because she grew up, uh, both her parents were a member of a group called Los Folkloristas, and they were very much interested in discovering and propagating traditional Mexican music. So she grew up very much uh, in in the context of uh, Mexican uh, traditional music, but herself studied also at top institutions. So she very much is able to bridge the world, I would almost say, between indigenous music and art music uh, of uh, perhaps Western art music. And the result is a very heterogeneous uh, piece, which undoubtedly captures uh, this rhythmic vitality of the Mexican folk music, but is then also uh, has uh, periods of sophisticated, I would call, suave harmonies. And it's a contemporary composition which I think, you know, every audience will get up and cheer afterwards. And I think it's perfect for a youth orchestra. Tenec Invenciones de Territorio by Gabriela Ortiz, performed by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Gustavo Dudamel, the choice of my guest today, Stan Dodds, who is the new chief conductor of the Sydney Youth Orchestras. And I have to say that that recording was very generously provided to us by Deutschland Radio for this program. Stan, so you decide uh, when you're 15 in Linz that uh, this is going to be your career. Tell me about the process from there. 
So I still had to finish school and... Uh, school schmool, what do you do? <laughs> no, well, school was still in Adelaide and, uh, and yes. it was sort of important to me also to continue at least to the end and to follow some other interests that I had. So I did a fairly standard matric with uh, two maths, physics, German and English. German by that stage was a freebie. And I had a place then in a, an electrical engineering course at Adelaide University as a reserve. And, and this was important to me because... I've always had many interests in life. I mean, uh, even after I w began considering music as a central activity, I, my interest for other things in life, uh, uh, engineering, but many other, just very diverse interests. So it was, took me a long time to realise actually music is the one and only. Um, but I, I went then to Switzerland, to Lucerne, to study with Gunnar's Larsens, who happened to be the son of Alita Larsons, whom I'd been learning with for the first 11 years of mm. my life. So it was actually only in some ways a very small step, but it was a large step because in 1987, of course, for a 17-year-old to leave home and go overseas, we have to always remind ourselves there was no fax, there was no email, there was no, uh, there was simply no digital communication. You wrote letters back then. You wrote letters or a very expensive reverse charges phone call. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you then move on to be part of the Carry-On Academy. Yes, I spent five and a half years in Lucerne and a very, very enjoyable years there, I might add. I think in some ways I almost got a little bit too comfortable there. I almost immediately began playing with the chamber orchestra uh, on uh, Festival Strings Lucerne and that literally took me around the world. I did my first Japan tours, um, Turkey, uh, and all over Europe, and particularly all around Switzerland in summer. And this, these were just fabulous experiences, and I could play a bit of solo. But from a repertoire and from a music uh, education point of view, of course, it was in some ways it was limited. We were just 13 string players, so all the repertoire was simply string orchestra. Um, and I think that in retrospect, five and a half years was probably a little long to be doing that, but it was just so comfortable and I, I really did enjoy living in Switzerland, you know, in winter, simply being able to get on a train and in one hour be up in the mountains and go skiing. It's, I it's, miss that it's to this nice. day. Yeah, I miss it to this day. <laughs> but then they say that about our beaches too. So it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> you, always, you always miss what you don't have. Uh, but uh, is that, that's like that journey of discovery you were talking about earlier towards the symphonic repertoire, isn't it? What ties into that? Well, it, it really does because, I mean, I was aware... I mean, at the latest, after after five years, I had to leave. I had to do something else. I, I, it was pretty clear to me from Switzerland that I needed to move north to Germany and uh, I was looking around at the main music uh, institutions, the Musikhochschulen, and wondering which teacher should I go to and how will I pay the rent and, such, and stuff like that. And then through a fellow Australian, uh, Sally Clark, I, uh, who was in the Karyan Academy at the time, I, it came to my attention. There's this wonderful institution that offers you a monthly stipend and uh, an hour and a half of individual instruction with the principals of the Berlin Phil and uh, two hours of chamber music instruction per week and, and work as a substitute with the orchestra. And it did really sound too good to be true. And I thought I must at least give that a go. And I was fortunate. I... I Got a position, one of the five violin positions in that was back in 1993. And so I spent one year in the academy and this, I would say, was the commencement of that very steep learning curve because I came into a very highly charged, powerful environment, was confronted with many things for which I initially just had a sense of complete wonder, coupled with the sort of feeling, well, God, am I good enough for this? You know, and, and it became aware to me 
all of the deficits that I had up until that point, you know. And so on the one hand, it was very exciting, but on the other hand, it was quite daunting. Mm. Was it was it a sort of a cutthroat environment or was it a sort of supportive environment? Because it must have been incredibly competitive to get into. Yes. Uh, you know, I would say neither nor. I mean, okay. I don't think I was important enough to warrant, uh, you know, chopping down or <laughs> not, building up. It's, not, up, it's up to me. Not even amongst <laughs> the other four violinists that you'll... you'll... Uh, no, because we're, we're, we're spread out. Even right. I, There was certainly, I think, a rapport between us. Um, at that point, you don't necessarily feel that you're competitors, although actually inevitably you will be for any free positions. Um, no, no, it's very much more just the fact that uh, there's so much experience around you. There's so much top-level musicianship occurring every week. And it's just trying to figure out how to exist in that environment and not maybe not be crushed by it and also just dealing with all of the nerves that go with doing some of this stuff for the first time, sometimes with not very much rehearsal, you know, and all very much warning. It, it, it was... I mean, I, I look back and, and I realise that there was a degree of trauma involved in all of that too, that I somehow managed to survive. But I wouldn't say I came through it completely unscarred, but I survived it. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of big names that uh, you rattled off earlier. I think Abado, for instance, was there at the time, wasn't he? Um, did you know from your upbringing, did you really know the significance of all these people when you were mixing with them? I did because, I mean, I don't know if uh, the MBS radio stations ex- exist at that time, but I did listen oh, to yes, ABC. Oh, yes, they did. They did. Oh, well, I'm so sorry. but I, we're, we're the oldest FM station in Australia. Well, no, no, that's good. And I, I should have been listening to that. I'm sh- But, you know, we grew up with the classic radio yeah. running in the background. So, yes, there were all these names that were just names. And, I mean, my father had a huge record collection. So, all you know, it yeah. was all these names were on the record collection. And, indeed, and suddenly you're meeting them. And then indeed, it's quite something when suddenly they just turn up and you find yourself working with them and you have to keep pinching yourself. But to be honest, very often the task at hand then uh, enveloped the wonder and you just sort of thought, well, okay, I've got to figure out how to do this and I've got to survive this. And I, um, and at some point, every now and again, you did enjoy it. You did sort of, you got maybe got a bit of feedback from a, an old colleague saying, oh, it's fun playing next to you that gave you the encouragement and strength nice. to keep going. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. You were never regretting leaving Lucerne. Well, at the at the beginning, I have to admit, I I have to admit now, I, I hated Berlin because when you come from a little picturesque postcard town like Lucerne, Berlin in the early '90s was still pretty gritty, right? Yeah. I mean, it's quite it's still diff- scarred by the Berlin Wall. Being I mean, it was you know the wall had been down four years; mm. it was finding its feet. Yes, it, it was a town which had a lot of promise. There was a lot of, uh, you know, they were considering moving the capital to Berlin, so that the prospect was good, but it still had that very gritty side to Berlin, which. Also now, in retrospect, I actually find attractive and, uh, and maybe even sexy because Berlin has become, uh, over the 20, uh, no, 30 years I've been there, it's become highly gentrified to a large degree and you actually have to look very hard to find remnants of that Berlin that existed in the 80s and 90s. Did you see the transition from that uh, division of East and West Berlin? Did you see that change? Or was it just kind of went, once the wall came down, we all mixed together and that's it? No, actually, the divisions still exist. You think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's an ongoing conversation in Germany. Because, the, of course, the physical divisions fell away, but the mental divisions and also the fact that you had literally a couple of generations growing up in a system which provided them with an understanding and a framework for the world which just disappeared mm. and in some ways was taken over then by the West. And a lot of this is still being worked through in Germany as we speak. And and then Berlin still has some remnants of that. There are, there are definitely uh, suburbs of Berlin where you could say the people there still see themselves as, as Eastern Germans. And then there are some more uh, central uh, suburbs where 
they've been taken over by wealthy uh, West Germans, for example. Yes. It's really very much an ongoing topic, even to this day. And it, it, it's, I think it's, you know, almost serves as a bit of a warning. You know, walls, they last a long time in our heads. Mm. And next piece of music now, Stan, and we're going to Wagner. So I couldn't do my first concert with SYO without some German romantic highlights because <laughs> in the end I think that was the music that really drew me in deep into in, into my love of the orchestra and of being in Berlin. And I've chosen two German composers who are the best operatic composers actually, uh, German operatic composers. And I, I, leave, I leave off Mozart here, we'll call him Austrian for now, but later in the program there's also a work by Richard Strauss. So I've got Wagner and Strauss as my representatives. And um, I've chosen uh, the uh, Vorspiel and Liebestod from Tristan and Isolde by Wagner for a reason that I'll come to a little later. Um, it has to do very much with the Tristan and Isolde legend and that ties into the work I've selected for the second half of our first year together with SYO. But I think in many ways uh, this work or this highly abbreviated version of Tristan Isolde <laughs> that is the biggest shortcut in the history of music, about four and a half hours of music, gets simply sliced through there. But there is simply no doubt that as in terms of one of the most influential pieces of music on music history in general, this piece, I think, you know, shares a place all its own. of the Liebestod from Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. Herbert von Karen conducting the Berlin Philharmonic in that recording. And that was the choice of my guest in conversation today, Stan Dodds. Stan, why do you start getting interested in conducting? Well, my interest in conducting really began when I started playing with the Berlin Philharmonic as a Karajan um, scholar in 1993. I, I realised at that point that conducting is a serious art form or a serious discipline. It was That was an uh, impression that hadn't necessarily been reinforced during my years in Lucerne. 
I didn't have much contact to very well-established conductors. Because that was like a, a chamber orchestra it was without a, cha- a conductor, right? That's right. And yeah. the conductor was the founder. He was himself a violinist. And I think he came to conducting when he couldn't play violin anymore. But it really wasn't conducting, at least not certainly not what I understand to be conducting today. I did have the pleasure in Lucerne as a student to play with Herbert Blomstedt on one afternoon and I, that left a deep impression on me because mm. it became clear to me what a conductor is actually able to do in a short space of time with an orchestra. But otherwise, the experiences were rather limited. And then I came to Berlin and, of course, I was, I was witnessing the A-League every week and, and simply the phenomena involved in, in the orchestra. An orchestra is a very complex uh, organism and then also the relationship between a conductor and the orchestra mirrors that complexity and how do they deal with it and there are so many sociological aspects to it too you know how do you deal with it that real-time management of a situation you have limited time you have objectives to achieve in what tone do you address the people and you know all of this is i mean if you're interested in people there's nothing more interesting than than the working relationship between a conductor and an orchestra so i was highly intrigued by it but i didn't necessarily entertain any ideas at least in the first years in the orchestra of actually pursuing it until Brett Dean invited me out to take part in a national music camp in Canberra that he was director of in 2001. And he'd asked me to work with the Llewellyn String Orchestra, so I knew I would have a large string group. And together we worked out a program which I loved. It, it ranged from Bieber to Stravinsky, and, uh, and I did an arrangement of a Janacek string quartet. So it was, a, it was a challenging program. And on the eve of the first rehearsal, I was speaking to Brett uh, at the staff dinner and I, I was—I had always had the assumption that the orchestra would play being led by the concertmaster and my job was to coach them and to, to set that up so it would work. But Brett said quite quickly to me, oh, no, 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 you're going to have to conduct that. And so I found myself working two weeks with a string orchestra, uh, more or less just instinctively um, without any pre-knowledge. And I realised two things. I realised that I enjoy very much working with youth and I realised that I really enjoy conducting. It felt <laughs> natural and uh, and it, I realised what a pleasure it gives me to be in that forming role with uh, with an ensemble. And Brett was very supportive. After that, he, he said, look, you've got talent. You should take it seriously. You should go find a teacher. You should, um, you should study it, which I then did. I, I went back to Berlin and uh, I had uh, from many sides, Jorma Panula, who at the time was really like the conducting teaching guru, was recommended to me. So I sought him out and, and went to a good number of master classes and, 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 and worked with him for several years. And at the same time, two of my colleagues were in charge of amateur orchestras in Berlin and both of them were leaving. So within a very short space of time, I had two good level amateur orchestras with which I could do, you know, a rehearsal each week with each of them. So the other important aspect of training to become a conductor, of course, is actually doing it. Um, I think, you know, experience is everything in this profession uh, um, and, and, and just the number of situations you've been confronted with and had to deal with all feed into the experience, which makes you a better conductor. So what were you learning from, you know, after the Brett Dean experience in Canberra? What were you then learning when you went to get formal training? Well, there, were, there was the, let's say, the actual um, the, the moments of teaching with Yorama Panula and his method is really actually quite simple. You go and you... It almost seems to always do the same repertoire to be Jupiter, be La Primidie d'Enfant from uh, Debussy and uh, Stravinsky, um, Dumbarton Oaks. You know, it, it, it sort of covered all the bases of essential conducting. And you go and do your 15 minutes in front of an orchestra. He doesn't say anything. He records it on video. Then you meet in the afternoon. When it's your turn, you go up the front, you sit there and you watch the video with him. And he right. basically just says, what's your left hand doing? No, you're too late. 
you, uh, there's there's a harp entry you didn't look over there. So he just basically takes apart what you're doing. Because, second by second, practically. Yeah, and he's seen it so often. And yeah. it, this was invaluable for me because until that time, I had recorded myself on video and I'd, I'd watch it. And it was disconcerting what I saw. It Something wasn't quite right, but I couldn't say what it was. And I think what Panala gave me was he gave me that critical eye from the... Uh, from the view of a conductor, of a conductor, what are you actually doing and what effect does it have? And more importantly, what are you doing that's not necessary and get rid of it? So that type of filter, as it were, was perhaps the main thing I took away from Panula. On top of that, then, of course, is simply the experience of the repertoire. I mean, the great thing about the, the amateur orchestras at, in my initial stages of my career is they weren't shy of doing anything. So I, I, I went into the Bruckner symphonies, Mahler symphonies, and I did all of this ambitious repertoire with them. And, you know, that has the advantage. You do it for a long period of time. You really delve deep. You know, I tried to learn all this stuff also by heart. And um, so it was, it was very much learning by doing in a setting, which, of course, is its own distinct setting because, uh, you, you know, you can only draw the parallels to then a professional environment to a degree. It, mm. That changes then quite drastically once you move out of the amateur circle. Mm. Well, we talked about Brett Dean, so I think we have to have some of Brett Dean. Uh, what's this work? So Brett Dean has, as I, I described, been a very influential figure in my development as a musician. I, I have a great deal of admiration for him as a viola player and a, as a composer. And as we all know now, he's really one of the, let's say, great composers uh, composing music today. I've chosen a work that he composed in 2006 uh, that was a commission of the Berlin Philharmonic as an uh, addendum to Holst's Planets. Uh, Simon Rattle, I think, was very keen to do not just the planets, but of always something just a little spicier. So he gave five uh, commissions uh, for a short work, which he labeled Asteroids to go with the planets. And the work I've chosen uh, to do with SYO is Brett Dean's contribution to the asteroids. And it's a work titled Komarov's Fall. And I think it's particularly distinct, not only as a powerful um, piece of music, but also the narrative or the let's say the program behind this piece is also is very powerful and in some ways has resonances today. It's the story of a Soviet cosmonaut, Vladimir Komarov, who in 1967 was sent up in the Soyuz 1 spacecraft, but there was a malfunction and the spacecraft burned up on re-entry into the atmosphere. And so he thus became the first um, human casualty in space. And the back story to that um, tragedy is that... Uh, I think the concerns with the space capsule at the time uh, of the engineers was overridden by politicians that just said, well, we want to have a grand space flight on Lenin's uh, birthday. So, uh, or, so so, send him up. And uh, and so the work traces a little bit uh, sort of the idea of a spaceship out there with very faint telemetry signals and, and then some very heated conversations between Komarov and space control. And apparently also his wife was called in to say farewell once they realized that this may, might not work. So there's a farewell in there too. So in a very short space of time we have almost enough material for an opera and he fits that into about eight minutes.
Dean with Komarov's Fall, Simon Rattle conducting the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. And, well, you might not be able to hear him, but in that recording is my guest in conversation today, violinist and conductor Stan Dodds. And Stan is the new chief conductor of the SYO. So the Berlin Philharmonic that we just heard there, Stan, uh, it's one of the world's most prestigious orchestras. You know, you were hearing the records of the Berlin Philharmonic uh, when you were a kid. Tell me about it from the inside. Well, you know, I consider myself now of the veteran generation. You know, for 30 years now, I've been watching younger players come into the orchestra and now some of the younger players coming into the orchestra are about the same age as my children. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> that's you know, starts getting awkward. <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite a it's quite a span. You know, I play second violin. I'm a rank and file member. So, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a foot soldier in this institution, but... Um, the orchestra is very proud of the fact that it is self-determining and particularly self-governing. I think um, the orchestra itself was founded in 1883 in an act of rebellion against their um, employer. I think the the issue was they were not in agreement with being sent fourth class by train to their to their guest concerts, and so they all decided to collectively resign and form an orchestra. So this idea of, uh, you know, self-determination is very much a part of the DNA. Now, that alone wouldn't have guaranteed their survival. They had some very good fortune in that they got a very good manager early on who put them onto some very good conductors, um, most importantly the first one, Hans von Bülow. And he was, a, he was a very strict orchestral trainer. And so I think he laid the groundwork for what was became a, a, a recognised excellent orchestra. And that continued with only very few chief conductors. Uh, so Arthur Nikisch, followed by Furtwängler. And then after Furtwängler, after the war, uh, with a short interim period, came Karian for a long time. He needs no introduction. And following Karian, Abado, then Rattle. And now we have uh, Kirill Petrenko, uh, a Russian-born conductor who is an Austrian citizen as well. Um, so, you know, the orchestra is very proud of the fact that it is um, self-governed. That means that many organisational aspects of the orchestra are in the responsibility of musicians. The orchestra is represented on the board of the institution as a foundation, Berliner Philharmonica, 50% representation. So there are four members of the executive board. That's the chief conductor, the general manager, and two musicians. So... I have been involved in the orchestra politics quite intensely for a period of almost 25 years and uh, the, my final station was a member of that executive board for 12 years. And it was, of course, a very interesting uh, vantage point to view the orchestra's activities and also our music environment at large from, let's say, the top of the, the ivory tower. I didn't stand for re-election after the 12 years. I, I've decided that uh, I've I've had enough, I've done my service and uh, and I actually really want to focus my energies outside my job as a player on conducting. Mm. Coming to Australia to do the SYO, for, for example. For example, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a priority for me now. Awesome. Another orchestra I mentioned in the intro is the Berlin Symphony Orchestra. Yes. Your chief conductor, I'll tell me how that fits together. So, I mean, in some ways they don't forget fit together at all, and in some ways they're very closely linked. I mean, so the the name of the orchestra in German is Symphony Orchester Berlin. It, it, it's always tricky with a translation because you know uh, if you try and search for that term, you might get all sorts of results. But this orchestra, Symphony Orchester Berlin, has existed since uh, the fifties. And it was uh, instituted as a 
popular concert series initially featuring predominantly vocal works and choir works. But an important development was when the Philharmonie in Berlin was built in 1963. It was obviously built as a home for the Berlin Philharmonic, but there was an interest in attracting other orchestras to come and perform there. And so back in, in 1963, the um, manager of this concert series did a deal where he said, okay, look, I will guarantee a certain number of rentals per year. I would like to have some guarantees that I get some Saturday evenings. And thus a concert series was established to... By the uh, Professor Victor Hornfels, his name is, um, and known as Popular Concerts, uh, that has been going ever since. It has catered predominantly, well, obviously, in the years up until 1989 to a West Berlin audience, and in some ways, I think, continues to do so. I mean, one of the remarkable things about Berlin is simply how long the Philharmonie has remained the concert hall for the west of the city and the concert house for the east of the city, and only now are those borders beginning to blur. So we're dealing with a very old concert series, but it's uh, uh, it, what makes it distinct from the rest of the concert activity in Berlin is that it's a privately funded venture. There is no state subsidies whatsoever. So it's run literally off the sniff of an oily rag. Um, the orchestra has a steady uh, membership, but they are paid per project. But it has one very, very nice feature, and that is the concerts are consistently sold out. Mm. This has a, perhaps a little bit to do with the fact that the repertoire focuses on, let's say, the popular classics from Mozart, Brahms, Haydn, uh, through to Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff. Um, it, it's not crowd pleasers. Yeah, so it's way. it's you know it it serves one side of my interests. Uh, I have to look for my contemporary passions elsewhere, but um, uh, the the concerts are always sold out, and particularly around Christmas is a very important period when. Uh, people like to go to concerts and I think perhaps in some ways the most important date in my calendar is that I conduct the New Year's concert in the Philharmonie on the 1st of January every year with Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So, And that's a a very popular institution uh, in Berlin. So this gives me uh, the pleasure of being able to combine conducting and playing in the same building, which also has the added advantage they can't clash. (laughs) (laughs) They can't happen at the same times. And this makes Berlin quite unique, I think, that, you know, I can do all of that within four walls. I mean, that's that's a rare combination. I think that's a pretty good position to be in. You mentioned uh, a lot of those great conductors, whether it's Carrie and Abado, Rattle, etc. Do you see a difference between that generation of conductor and your generation of conductor? I think the profession of conducting has undergone some significant changes over the past decades that I've been observing it or, or being, being part of. I mean, when I got into the orchestra in the 90s, the procession of conductors every week was basically a set of old men. I think that's the first big difference to today. There were a lot of grand maestros um, uh, who had extremely large egos, who had varying styles in front of the orchestra. Most of the I think most the, the top conductors, usually the relationship with the Berlin Philharmonic was such a, a long relationship that it was actually a very pleasant atmosphere. There was a lot of mutual respect from the orchestra, the conductor and vice versa. Different uh, so for, for, for younger conductors and, and over the years, of course, I've seen you know, uh, the generation, I call them the 80s generation, uh, that's Gustavo Dudamel, Andris Nelson, uh, Tugan Sokiev. Uh, I've seen them come and establish themselves very firmly in our in our weekly schedules. And now, of course, uh, in the 10s and 20s, uh, uh, we're getting, I think, a long overdue correction in that uh, we are placing a lot of emphasis on looking 
uh, to, to women conductors as well. Now, I wouldn't say that Berlin Philharmonic is at the forefront of that development, but on the other hand, it's just very important to realise that conducting is a profession that depends heavily on opportunities to mm. do do it at an early age, which means taking risks, which means, you know, the possibility of sometimes of failure. But no conducting career will graduate from a piano to an orchestra. It needs to go the route of experience and podium time. And that's why it's very important at the moment that uh, I think to affect this corrective that needs to be addressed, we need to make sure that the young women of our generation are getting the chances. And I have the feeling that this is now occurring very well. And I think the outcome after, let's say, a generation that we just don't actually think about it anymore. You know, the first time I saw a woman in front of the Berlin Philharmonic, I noticed myself noticing it and I thought, that's no good. Were you noticing yourself noticing it? Because, I mean, my observation is that I feel like, you know, having more women conductors, it's been very late to the party compared to virtually every other profession. Is that a fair comment? Absolutely. And, mm. and that's why I say it's long overdue. Mm. Look, I'm, I'm very happy to say that uh, Simone was with us doing Turangalila Symphony uh, in May 2023. I mean, Simone, I know Simone so well, but, you know, f for me, just no, I don't even think about it. I no. really did not think for a second about it anymore. But I don't know if, uh, I don't know if it's like that for everybody, you know, and... Um, so I still think we're in a we're in a time now where you know emphasis needs to be placed and we need to find the balance and we have to we simply have to realize that it's an essential part of career development to give chances. Mm. And uh, so I, I feel like we're 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 heading in a good direction at mm. the moment. Moving away from that aspect of it, I'm also curious about the, the maybe the, perhaps the process aspect or the style aspect. I mean, you did drop the word ego in there when talking about some of that uh, previous generation. Has the style of how people manage, how conductors manage orchestras, has that changed? Well, I think it has. I think um, uh, I think the new generation of conductors is much more aware of perhaps the tone in which they address an orchestra. Uh, yeah, I have I have kids who are in their early 20s and i mean they simply are different to me i, I and you know and i think the the young generation of conductors reflects the fact that the younger generation today has just grown up in a completely different world to the one i grew up in and and i hope it's really it's it's for the better so yes there is a difference but i think that's also just quite natural mm. Going back to Simon Rattle, who we heard uh, conducting the Berlin Phil in one of our earlier pieces there, I saw that you and he sort of collaborated in this thing a few years ago called the B-Phil <laughs> Orchestra. It sounds absolutely wonderful. Can you tell us what that was? Well, uh, this was born a little bit also of my observations in the amateur music scene in Berlin that um, it, it remained, until I discovered it, because I was interested in conducting, it was completely invisible to me as an active professional musician. And I was quite delighted by what I discovered there because you, you have a, a set of people who are passionate about orchestras, they're passionate about orchestral repertoire, and they follow that passion with, a, with an active involvement in, in that they play in these orchestras. And they commit a lot of time, a lot of energy uh, to, to, these, uh, to these projects. And these are the people who form let's say, an important part of our concert audience. So I started looking at the concert audience a little bit differently. I was just thinking, oh, the people sitting out there, they've played this symphony. They know that this transition at Letter C is difficult. And they're listening out very specifically for how we manage it. You know, this idea that your audience is highly informed was actually quite, that was quite a revealing moment for me. But I think also in some ways, more importantly, uh, they are also most likely to be the parents of kids to whom they will share or with whom they'll share 
their love of music. Um, and I think just this awareness that amateurs are an essential part of our music ecosystem, I think is also for a professional musician, an important realization. So born out of that was the idea, why don't we try to put together an orchestra of passionate amateurs from around the world? And Simon Ratter was, you know, all go, go, go for this idea. So they would, you know, the promise would be to come to Berlin, self-funded and uh, have some rehearsals with Simon Rattle and perform in the Philharmonie. And of course, you know, the, the the interest was enormous. And, and so I was the project manager and I, I, I sort of assembled the orchestra and uh, and did pre-rehearsals with them and conducted a few pieces. And this was, a, it was a huge success. And I think our institution, the Berlin Philharmonic, is looking to repeat that idea. I mean, there was a repeat plan with Kirill Petrenko in 2020, but we all know why that fell through. Can't imagine why. Um, yeah, so so it's an idea that lives on. Yeah. It was actually- I think it's a great idea. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah. An next track of music now, Stan. And uh, well, you previewed it before, and that's Richard Strauss and Rosen Cavalier. Well, uh, again, it's a, I would just say one of my favourite composers. Um, Richard Strauss, I have a deep- fascination and love of his music and uh, I would say that was not initially the case when I was more familiar with his tone poems rather than his stage works but since I've uh, become more familiar with his operas and in particular Rosenkavalier and uh, quite recently Die Frau ohne Schatten or The Woman Without a Shadow, I'm not quite sure what the name is, a, a rather obscure opera which is not often performed but absolutely wonderful music. I, I felt I had to include something by Strauss on the program. So I've looked back to the Rosen Cavalier uh, opera and instead of playing the series of waltzes, which Strauss put together quite soon after the premiere, I've decided to play what's known as the Rosen Cavalier Suite, which is probably not even assembled by Strauss, but it was something he did give his permission to performances of in 1945 when he was maybe a little strapped for cash. And what it is, it's actually just a teaser for the opera. So it, it, it encompasses not just the waltzes, but some of the musical highlights from the opera. Moments I feel that once you've heard uh, will change your life in, in some way.
a little bit of Richard Strauss's Rosen Cavalier, Carlos Kleiber conducting the Bavarian State Orchestra, the choice of my guest in conversation today, violinist and conductor Stan Dodds. Well, Stan, you're based in Berlin, but you still kind of call Australia home. Outside of playing the violin or conducting, what do you like to do when you return to Australia? Well, you know, look, I love nature and I love being active. Uh, So uh, I would say really if... If I have a free week, I turn to the countryside, the outback in Europe. I like to go into the mountains. I like to go hiking. I've just started climbing a little bit, but uh, I'm very late to that game. And if not in that direction, I like to go the other direction. I'm a very passionate sailor. Uh, COVID was good for me in that it gave me some extra time to pursue some sailing qualifications that I'd always meant to do, which allow me now to charter boats myself in the Baltic and in the Mediterranean. So that's something I love to do. And of course, Sydney is, uh, let's just say, one of (laughs) the iconic places to get on a sailboat. And I've had one or two, I've been invited onto a boat and done an an evening regatta here. And that that was a dream come true. (laughs) Fantastic. Returning to your new role with the Sydney Youth Orchestras, what is it, Stan, that you'd like these young musicians to be left with after performing with you? Well, we're going to be going on a journey together. Um, And I'm going to be their guide. I've also suggested the places we're going to visit in terms of the programs. And my hope is that they can share my enthusiasm, that they find the excitement generated within that these pieces of music give me for the different reasons and in the different styles that they are. And I hope I can give them a feeling of just how big the world is and what the possibilities are and how music is the ideal place to, to experience life within, within a very special context and, 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 and some of the most deepest human experiences that you can have. Well, Stan, it's been absolutely awesome having you here today. But before I let you go, there is one more piece of music to introduce. And uh, this one is, uh, is a challenging one, if I can express it in those terms. If, you, if I hope you don't mind that. Can you uh, talk us through what we're going to hear? So I mentioned before that uh, my selection of uh, Tristan and Isolde by Wagner, the Vorspiel and Liebestort, uh, is part of a, a reference to what I intend to do later in the year. And so uh, the program that I've or the piece that I've selected for our concert together in early December is Olivier Messiaen's Turangalila Symphony. Now, this is a uh, 90-minute long 10-movement work for very, very significant orchestral forces with a fiendishly difficult uh, piano solo part and a very exotic instrument called the Ande Martineau. It is one great epic Ode to Joy. I mean, we all know the Beethoven Symphony, but this is Messiaen's Song of Joy, a Hymn of Love. And it is one of three works that he composed in between 1945 and 1948 in what he called his Tristan Trilogy. Now, it's very much linked to the idea of love extending beyond the limits of life and the infinite nature of love, whereby he does draw some distinctions to the, the, the interpretation of Wagner and his own. I think uh, very much important for Messiaen was unlike Wagner, where there are social constraints and prohibitions which lead to the intensification of the love, his is really much more just a, a, a contemplation on the nature of love and pure love. I think that would be the main distinction. Now, this work is a huge challenge, but I am 
uh, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking at the music of Olivier Messiaen. I find him incredibly fascinating as a composer. He is also, without doubt, one of the most influential composers as a teacher or a, uh, on, on contemporary music in the second half of the 20th century. He was very individual and remained very true to his own concepts. I love the fact that he was also essentially a professional ornithologist. So bird calls and here's, wow. my, here's my love of nature feature very heavily in his music. And uh, he also came to Australia on a couple of occasions, including the 80s, where he was taken up to rainforests in Queensland and in the Dandenongs because of certain birds he wished to hear. So all in all, Messiaen for me is a very uh, central composer. And I believe this work to be one of the most important pieces of the 20th century. And I'm absolutely convinced that when a group of young musicians uh, work through this piece and, and bring it to a performance, it will be something they never forget. Stan Dodds, thank you so much for being in conversation with me today. Thank you very much, Simon. Conductor and violinist Stan Dodds. He's the new chief conductor of the Sydney Youth Orchestras. For all their upcoming concerts and events, visit syo.com.au. You can also keep up with everything else Stan is up to at stanleydodds.com and, of course, you can easily find both Stan and the SYO on Instagram and Facebook. That's the program for today. Catch up on previous episodes at 2mbsfinemusicsydney.com slash inconversation or search 2MBS In Conversation in your preferred podcast app and do please leave a rating and review where you can. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. <laughs>